This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. If you're a loser, tune in and you'll be a winner. It's the Moranalytics Podcast. Talking Buffalo sports, Yankees, WWE, 80s music, and pop culture. And now, here's your host, Patrick Moran. What's up, podcast people? Welcome to the Moranalytics Podcast. Today is Monday, April 23rd. Sometimes I feel like I just launched this podcast yesterday. But actually, we're up to episode 14 now. I'm hardly even a rookie anymore. (laughs) Time to start earning that big, huge salary that I make for doing this show. What a great unintentional segue there. Because speaking of today's show, I surely have my biggest guest to date. Surely you can't be serious. I am serious. And don't call me Shirley. That's right. I am joined by 20-year Sports Illustrated veteran who has recently taken his talents to The Athletic. I'm talking, of course, about the great sports media columnist and podcaster, Richard Deitch. If you're a sports fan but have been living under a rock all these years, there's few, few in the world of sports media that can even hold a candle to the things Richard's done in this business. In this interview, we're talking about why Richard decided to leave SI for The Athletic, why he'll soon be making Toronto his new home. Richard shares some great Olympic and podcasting stories. And of course, we talk about some of his formative years when he attended college at the University at Buffalo, go UB. His time at UB helped propel him to what's become an amazing career. Immediately after that interview, I grabbed Tone Pucks and we do our weekly Pat with Pucks chat. We're down in the last few days before the NFL draft. And what a fascinating few months of talk and speculation it's been. While sometimes it's maddening, it's so much more fun when the team you follow closest is openly looking for their next franchise quarterback And that's exactly the way it's been from day one with the Buffalo Bills this offseason. Day one. We run down some of the latest draft news, and we both go on a limb and make a couple bold draft predictions since this will be the last pad with Pucks before the NFL draft gets started this Thursday. We also give our takes on the NFL schedule release, particularly our thoughts regarding the Buffalo Bills. And speaking of which, Fred Jackson officially retired this past week, and we both have pretty strong opinions on how Fred Jackson should be remembered by the organization and the fans around Western New York. At least I do. All right, listen, I'm not going to waste any of your time today rambling on like I usually do at the top of the show, so let's get right 
down to business. Here's my interview with Richard Deitch, followed immediately by Pat Whitpucks. All right, guys, you're going to have to excuse me a little bit because I'm kind of in fanboy mode right now. My guest today is one of the best known sports media figures in the business. After spending 20 years at Sports Illustrated, he's now at The Athletic, where he's assumed his role as a media critic, columnist, and host of one of the best sports podcasts in the world, period, end of story on that. He also has a nice Buffalo connection, which I'm sure we're going to talk about a little bit. I'm talking, of course, about Richard Deitch. Richard, thanks for coming on. I really appreciate your time. Yeah, that's quite a hype job you just gave me, Patrick. You're welcome. (laughs) You know what? Mike Harrington said the same thing from the Buffalo News last week. I think I might be better at hyping than interviewing people. Don King made a lot of money for many years on it. There's some money to be made in that. (laughs) Well, let me start here because this is something that's always fascinated me. What first got you interested in writing about the inner workings of the sports media world? Because a lot of journalists grow up and their dream of being the beat writer for the Yankees or the Mets, and they don't want to do anything else. What what got you interested in the type of uh, writing that you do now? Well, I pretty much, I mean, I just fell into it at SI. It's, um, I've, I've always been fascinated by the media, and I love to read. So even as a young kid, like bylines interested were really interesting to me, like who were the people writing stories and who were the broadcasters announcing games. But it's not like I... Um, you know, and the Buffalo connection is I, you know, I graduated from the University of Buffalo. So it's not like I um, left school, like wanting to be a media writer. Uh, I wanted my dream was to work at Sports Illustrated, and I was really lucky to be able to get there. But I grew up wanting to cover Olympics um, and writing about tennis. Those were the two things I really wanted to do. And I was incredibly fortunate to do both at Sports Illustrated. The media stuff, um, there's really nothing more boring than someone talking about their sort of professional history. But if I remember correctly, um, Sports Illustrated had a, a weekly column in a magazine on media. And it was done prior to when I did it by a guy named John Walters. Sports Illustrated had a rich tradition of media writers, including William Taft, who used to do a lot of profiles, people like Howard Cosell, Frank Gifford, etc. And John Walters, um, I think, moved. He either left Illustrated, or he moved to another beat, and that left that media page open. I was part of the group of writers working for the section called Scorecard, which was the front of the magazine, and so they just assigned it to me um, as part of a rotation, and I did a couple of uh, columns, and these were not long columns at the time. Basically, it was like one or two very quick media items, and then you were going to list some of the things that were on interesting things that were on television that week and, you know, try to be sarcastic or funny about the things that people could watch. Um, then bosses seemed to like what I was doing. So I ended up doing more of the, the mag- the media page in the magazine. And then I shifted my, um, sort of emphasis to the web where I became sports illustrated, special projects editor, just like a, like a fancy title for putting together projects that involve, uh, many different people, many different writers. And when I was doing um, the special project stuff, I pitched basically, you know, because I just found the media stuff interesting, could I do like a once a month column on the web on media? Um, they said I could. Uh, that started, uh, that um, initially uh, was a slow process, but over the course of a couple of years, 
that column started to get a lot more traffic. Uh, I, I upped my frequency in terms of doing that column. And I get very lucky because in the, the time I was doing that media stuff, a lot of media writing kind of exploded online. The dead spins, uh, uh, places, you know, a lot of sports blogs were writing about broadcasters and they were getting a lot of attention and a lot of traffic from it. And I think my bosses sort of saw the potential and possibility for us doing that at Sports Illustrated. And then it just basically became like more of my full-time job. I just wrote more. It was getting, um, it was getting attention. It was getting a lot of traffic. I was doing something I think that at least not many people in the space were doing. I was doing really like Peter King long kind of media columns, um, which I think was different than what the newspapers were doing. Mm-hmm. It was a little different than Deadspin was doing. I mean, Deadspin was much more harder edge than me. And so that's how it sort of grew. And then, you know, um, over the course of whatever it was, six, seven, eight years at SI.com, I just, I ended up morphing from being a special projects editor to essentials writing media full time, as well as still covering the Olympics a little bit, still covering women's basketball, still covering tennis. So that's, that's, I just sort of fell into it. I mean, I certainly like it and I find it really interesting, but it's not anything that I dreamed about as a kid that I would go into. Well, I mean, you've done it all when it comes to sports media. I'm a fan of yours for many reasons, but I got to be honest with you. None of them are bigger than something as simple as this. When you call Skip Bayless out on Twitter, when he types stupid things, especially when you mention his sagging ratings and you compare it to like reruns on TV or Nickelodeon shows, it's literally, and I'm not just blowing smoke because you're on my show right now. I'm saying this and I mean it. It's literally my single favorite thing on Twitter. When I go on Twitter, it's one of the first things I look for is a Skip Bayless tweet that I know is going to cause a reaction and then you coming at him with something. It's awesome. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's going to be my gravestone. The guy who compared Skip Bayless' ratings to Paw Patrol and Happy Dog <laughs> Pals. Um, I have retired that for the moment. I may bring it back uh, once or twice in the playoffs. Um, and the reason I sort of stopped it was I felt like at a certain point I'd made the point. Like, I mean, I did it for a year and a half and I, I wasn't, it's interesting. Like, I, I think most people sort of get this. I, I wasn't doing it to like even per se, take a shot at Skip Bayless. I was trying to make a larger point and particularly all those tweets were designed at Fox executives, not at Bayless at all. I know he knew I was doing it, but I don't, I barely think he, he looked at that at all, but it was the larger, like just of the, year year over year over year enabling of a guy whose literally sole job was essentially to be a hockey goon when it came to like the likes of LeBron James and Aaron Rodgers and and Des Bryant. And that's not me being like some kind of athlete apologist or anything. It's just the sole purpose of that guy and his show is essentially to create as much outrage and attacks on these athletes. So I just felt it would be like kind of um, humorous and interesting if, well, what if I basically used the same exact language and premise of the guy's tweets and just flipped it and did something absurd, like compared to cartoons, um, you know, and I think most people got that. I still obviously would get like people saying it's not an apples to apples comparison. Kids don't watch, uh, um, undisputed. Like, yeah, no kidding. I'm not an idiot. I get, I understand all of that. Um, but yeah, it was trying to make a larger point. Honestly, I never thought it would be as popular as it was. That, that, that speaks to um, both the dislike of Bayless as well as the genius of Bayless for being a great heel. Um, so, um, I mean, while I, I appreciate what you're saying, I did at a certain point a couple months ago just stop because I felt like I was kind of repeating myself and I didn't want to become 
um, solely known for that or to be too much of a caricature, if that makes sense. It makes perfect sense. And I'm glad you said that because to his credit, it is in a way genius to use a wrestling term. He is a heel on social media, on Twitter. He he draws heat from the crowd. He says things yep. that he knows is going to draw heat. It's almost like that's his job. Intentional or not, it, I, you're right, but it was awesome just to see yeah, him get yeah, called I mean, out he, like he, that. Yeah, I mean, listen, I, I I don't respect the guy at all. I'll be very blunt. I think he's not good for the business. That said, he's cutting heel promos all the time, and he knows what he's doing, and it's effective for him because he he has made a lot of money, millions and millions of dollars, essentially being um, you know, the guy who walks in the middle of the ring and just like, um, you know, goes off on particularly like LeBron James. It's just, it's not based in reality. I mean, when you, when you have a, and I don't even blame Bayless. I, I would blame the, 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 the ESPN and Fox management who enabled all this. But, you know, if you want to be a serious sports network and you paying a guy millions and millions of dollars to go out there and like claim like LeBron James is not whatever this even means, like not a clutch basketball player. It's like just the height of absurdity. We're, we're talking essentially one of the three, maybe two best basketball players of all time. Right. If you look, look at his statistics, look at what he's done for his team. It's just, it goes against every fiber of logic that the guy is quote unquote, like not a clutch player. He, he's like, you, you can't have that kind of success unless you are that, but you know, it works because he'll say something and he gets attention. And, um, and that's why networks employ, guys like that, even though they don't bring big viewership, they bring attention. Um, so yeah, so I, I, I may, I may give it a cameo sometime in the playoffs, but it, it is at least in terms of a daily occurrence, it is officially retired. Okay. Let me get this out of the way so we can move on because most people know, but not everyone knows you recently moved on to the athletic after around 20 years at sports illustrated. Ultimately it was your decision. What, what made you decide that this was the time to make that move? Yeah, it was very hard. Um, you know, I love Sports Illustrated. It was my essentially my um, my only employer as an adult, basically, or, or you post post grad school. Um, it was very very hard. Uh, they, you know, could not have been better in terms of trying to keep me to stay. Essentially, it came down to having nothing to do with my bosses or my colleagues. Time Inc., which was the company that I worked for for all the years at Sports Illustrated, which owns which owned Time. People, Entertainment Weekly, Fortune, etc. They were sold to the Meredith Corporation, and so the Meredith Corporation, which has magazines like Better Homes and Gardens, and is known as a, uh, they do a lot of service magazines and women's magazines. Very successful publisher in in the middle of the country in Iowa. Um, it was very clear to me that Meredith was going to sell Sports Illustrated, and so when I was talking to the Athletic and when I was thinking about SI. In the end, it came down to if I took the athletic job, at least I would have a little bit of control over my immediate future. If I stayed at Sports Illustrated, I was really just rolling the dice, hoping that a good um, buyer would come along and believe in what SI does and invest money in it. So my decision in the end, first of all, I, I certainly think the athletics is a phenomenal publication, a digital publication. I think it does have a really uh, – I think it has great potential to be long-lasting – but in the end, my decision really came down to um, what gave me more of an opportunity to control my future, at least in the near term. And I believe the athletic was going to at least be around for a couple of years. And so I gambled and, and made the move um, knowing or thinking that Sports Illustrated was going to be sold, which inevitably Meredith announced it would be. And now we're going to see where SI 
gets sold. I'm rooting for it to go to a good place, but but that's what it came down to me. It was just basically I got a little more control of my own future by leaving, but it was by no means easy. And it's very possible if SI gets a great person to buy it, um, that maybe that, you know, uh, I'm one, I'm rooting for it and two, you know, maybe I will have made a mistake. Maybe I should have stuck around at SI, but I, I just wanted to, as someone who had worked for very bad time ink management for the course of more than a decade, I wanted to try to take a little bit of control of my future. And that's the reason I left. No, completely understandable. Now going to the athletic isn't the only major move you've made. You're also doing is it primetime sports with Bob McCown, a co-host at the Fan 590 in Toronto, right? In fact, not only are you working there, you're actually relocating to Toronto. Have you done that already? That is, uh, yeah, I've not done that yet. That's correct. Yeah, I, st- I basically uh, I had the same job for 19 years, and then in the course of 35 days, took two new jobs. Basically. <laughs> so, yeah. um, so no, I'm not. I'm relocating this summer, but I will be moving to Toronto, or my family and I will be moving to Toronto, which we're very excited about. Um, it's a great city, as anybody, uh, I shouldn't say anybody, but most people in Buffalo have probably been to Toronto at least once, and they know sure. it's a great city. Uh, so, yeah, it's very exciting, and it's surreal, and it's a lot of logistics to sort of jump through and to figure out in terms of immigration. But, uh, but yeah, we are moving up in the summer, and we're going to be there for uh, a couple of years, and we're going to give it a go. There's, uh, I'm not sure how many other cities I would have done that with, but Toronto really reminds me of New York. It's like a more, it feels like a more manageable New York. I love the city. Canadians could not be nicer people. The people at Rogers 590 have been incredible to me in terms of making this move work. And, you know, the chance, I've been a guest on Bob McCowan's show for maybe four or five years at this point. And the chance to basically walk into a show that is like that, respected, that's that long standing, that's the most listened to show in a country. It was, you know, this is a one in like, 50,000 like odds kind of thing that happened and I had to take it. It just, I would have regretted it 10 years from now just to not see what would have come of it if I didn't take it. So that was the, that, that was the sort of thinking there, but yeah, I'm excited, but also, you know, a little anxious and nervous just because it's, um, you know, it's a different country and I've had a whole different, um, whole different landscape. You grew up in a Wonton, New York, correct? It's like part of Nassau County near Long Island yep, or on yep, Long Island. Long Island. How yep, was that growing uh, up? Were you an Islanders fan as a kid? I was, yeah. Jones Beach, by the way, is probably the most famous thing in my town. Um, I was, yeah. My dad would, uh, he had season tickets for two years to the Islanders when they were pretty good, in fact. And so I was an Islander fan. I grew up an Islander and Met fan. Uh, a lot of times that was like the nexus if you you were like an Islander, Mets, Jets fan. I, I was not a Jets fan, by the way, but that, that was usually the nexus. And then uh, Knicks, Yankees, and Rangers, usually like those, you would, you reconnected to those three right. teams. But yeah, I, I, um, um, that's sort of where I grew a love for hockey, like those, you know, bossy pod fan, Trottier, like Clark Gillies, that, uh, um, Billy Smith, you know, that dynasty Islander team. If you were living on Long Island, you know, even as a little kid or older, like it, it was impossible to escape them. They were, they were just unbelievably great for so many years. And so I was an Islander fan. And then, um, but you know, the one thing, and I think if you talk to a guy like Mike Harrington or anybody else, the one thing when you cover sports and if you sort of take it seriously, you really do lose your fandom. It's not to say that you don't, you don't root for great things. And I certainly, I've always said this, I root for Buffalo teams to have success. Like I would love to see the Buffalo Sabres win the cup. I would love to see the Bills win win, win the Super Bowl. but I'm not sitting there day to day rooting for them because 
you know, when you, it's hard to explain, but when you've covered a team or when, you, when it becomes your job, if you're going to try to do it right, you do have to be, it's not even about objectivity per se. You just have to have some distance to fandom. And it's really the only way you could cover this stuff. So you can root for the story and you could root for success, I think, but you do lose your fandom. So I, I wouldn't say I'm a Met fan anymore. I, I wouldn't say I'm an Islander fan anymore, but I'll totally be honest. Like I, I want the Buffalo teams to do well. And I definitely want the Toronto teams to do well because one, I think um, that's going to be great for me to talk about on air. And two, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm not going to bullshit anybody. Like Rogers has a big stake in the Blue Jays and the Maple Leafs. If those teams go far, it's probably good for me as an employee. Um, but at the same time, if they don't play well, I'll, I'll certainly say it and, and give my opinion. But, uh, yeah, that's the one trade off for, um, when you're in sports journalism, um, uh, is that you do, or a lot of us do lose our fandom. There are people though, who sort of write about sports and, and sort of keep that fan centric viewpoint. Bill Simmons is a perfect example of that. But, um, but yeah, like how I felt about the Islanders, I don't, what, what, as a kid, that whatever that connection was, it's gone. It's just, I'm, I, I have distance to it now. Uh, but, but there is a, given that I, I went to school in Buffalo and given that I understand what Bill's fans have suffered and what Sabres fans have suffered, there's no doubt that I root for success for those teams. I, I would really like to see one of those two teams win a championship in my lifetime. Sure. And you bring up a great point. Like I had a good conversation with Mike Harrington in the Buffalo news about that. You do, you lose your fandom. It's not, you don't root for wins or losses. You, you, you want stories to write as a journalist. And he, he told me point blank. He goes, I want the team to be good because, of course, I do. You know, it gives you more games to cover. You, he would be exactly. covering hockey right now. But if they're not going to be good, he would rather them be a tire fire than be a team that's you know, hovers around 500 every year. And I'm sure when you're in Toronto doing your thing, too, you know, you want something to talk about. And honestly, a team that goes 40 and 40 every year, not a lot of excitement in that. No, I, I think Harrington's being honest. Um, I, one, he's... I'm glad he said that he would like to see them do well because it's, 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 it's inevitably good for your career. One, you're going to be covering playoff games Two, You may cover like a Stanley cup. Mm -hmm. uh, your readers are going to read everything. They're going to sure. consume everything. Sell so more that's papers. Just a, yeah. Sell more papers. It's all good financially. Um, yeah. Listen, I, I am fortunate that I am, you know, and again, I, I'm not, I don't proclaim to be any kind of Toronto sports expert, but I am clearly going up at essentially the halcyon period for Toronto sports, maybe the greatest period, that they've ever had. They have a young ascendant team with the Maple Leafs that even if they lose to the Bruins, I think are going to be a Stanley cup favorite over the next couple of years. Uh, the Raptors are this were the second best team in the league this year. And again, while LeBron and company could be tough to get past, they're a legitimate NBA finals contender. Mm -hmm. The blue Jays are off to an unbelievable start. If you like soccer, it's the defending MLS chance. If you like the CFL, it's the defending CFL chance. I mean, I, I'm literally going up there in the, I think I essentially the greatest period if you accumulate all those sports, perhaps ever. So it's real. I'm very fortunate in that. And I know from a lot of the sports talk hosts over the years, I mean, there've been years where the Leafs have been terrible. The Jays have been terrible. The Raptors weren't a factor. So you are correct. I would much rather, I think Harrington is right in that, you know, if you're going to be bad, you'd rather see them be really, really bad because then maybe there's a future down the road with draft picks. A 40 in the NBA, a 41 and 41 team is horrible. It's, it's, it's just like um, it's not great to talk about, and just like if you were in management, it's the it's the worst place to be in middle of the pack because you're not low enough in the draft to really get the great players. But um, 
you know, and you're um, you're close enough to make the playoffs, but you don't make the playoffs. So middle middle ground is not what you ever want. Well, you ain't lying about the Leafs being a team on the rise. They're fun to watch. And one of my favorite things, I mean, I live in Florida now after spending literally my whole life in Buffalo. I've only been down there for maybe a year or so. My favorite, maybe my sporting event favorite ever thing to do in Buffalo was when Toronto would come there because half the crowd would be Toronto fans. What, what right. a spirited game it was. So, yeah, you man, you're in a really rabid sports town. That's going to be a great gig for you. I'm looking forward yeah, to it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think, I mean, the one thing about that team is, again, they have great management, which is always um, – you know, always, I think the key to ultimately winning, you know, Lamarillo and Shanahan know what they're doing. No matter what you think of Babcock, you know, if you don't think he's as good as he thinks he is, he's still a quality coach. And they have youth and speed, and that is really great in the NHL. It's interesting, and I'm sure this kills Buffalo fans, but like, you're so much of things are out of your control, and you have to get lucky. So, for example, and this is not to say Jack Eichel's not a good player, I think he is. Right. But if you get McDavid instead of Jack Eichel, just think about that. It's essentially a flip of a coin kind of thing. Everything changes in the same way. If the Maple Leafs don't get the number one pick, Matthew, uh, you know the Matthews here, and let's say they get number three, everything changes. So you have to get sometimes lucky. For the Sabres case, I am really rooting for them to get the number one pick in the NHL entry draft because from everything I've read, Rasmus Dahlin is a game-changing defenseman, right. and it would be a massive, massive. Uh, uh, coup if they can bring him in compared to, and again, maybe the number two and number three players, great, but it's very clear if you look at sort of the uh, draft analysis, there's one guy who really could be a game changer in the draft, and that's him. So, so much of it sometimes is really when you're bad, you have to get lucky that when you're bad, you can get the number one pick. I hope they do get good soon because, again, Toronto and Buffalo is a fun rivalry when both teams are good. Let me backtrack real quick here for a second. So sure. you end up going to college at UB. Um, I've heard you describe that as a pivotal experience in your, of your life. Firstly, what made you attend UB? Uh, because I, when I went up there for an open house in April, it was like 70 degrees. I got totally faked out. Oh my God. You're so lucky. You are so lucky that you were, you're not going to college this year and we're yeah, going yeah. to an open house in April. Uh, uh, yeah. I got a total fake out. Um, <laughs> my, um, that's a good question. I think the re- one, I liked the town. It just felt comfortable to me and the, the school felt pretty comfortable, but I, I always thought I was going to eventually go to grad school and University of Buffalo was really, really cheap. It was a state school. I wasn't going to have many loans. And so that was a big factor, but it was, um, it, it just, for what, it was weird. Like I, I got into Syracuse. Um, I got waitlisted in Missouri, which was my first choice. I visited a lot of the SUNY schools and it just, for whatever reason, when I went up there for the open house, it was a beautiful day. It just felt right. It felt like, it just felt like a, like the right place to be, which is kind of weird because I knew I wanted to be a writer and it's not like the University of Buffalo has some kind of incredible writing tradition. The Spectrum is their college newspaper, which is great and has had a lot of good people floating through it, but it's not like it was at the time when I was there, some kind of communication factory. It didn't even have a journalism program. Right. So as I look back on it, I'm not, I, I wish I could give you a better answer. I'm not exactly sure what, why I finally made the decision other than I just had a feeling like it would be a comfortable place to go and it was going to be pretty cost affordable to go. I certainly don't regret it. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm really glad that I got to live in Buffalo. I had a great time at UB. It was, I met a lot of great friends and it, it was a fun school to go to and certainly just an amazingly, um, 
it, it, it really gave me a total different sense of life because Western New York is very different than where I grew up. And I'm, you know, it's almost like I was living in the Midwest, to be honest. Um, that's what I feel like Buffalo is much more of a Midwestern city than an East Coast city, in fact. And so I'm really glad I did it. But I, I as I think back, obviously, this many years later, there was really no logical reason for me to go there because it didn't really have academically what I ultimately ended up doing. Then again, I, um, because I went there, uh, and especially right out of school, I got to cover the Bills and Sabres as a 21-year-old. Um, and I got to write about them, which there's no way if I went to a Missouri or Syracuse that would have happened. So right after school, I got to cover those teams. I did it for a big weekly paper. I made no money. But I got to be in pro locker rooms at 21, which in hindsight really turned out to be really valuable for me. Oh, sure it was. And like you said, you, you joined the school newspaper, The Spectrum. That helped. That kind of gave you a little bit of confidence to really, you know, kickstart your journalism career, I would think. Yeah, I mean, don't go looking back on those archives because pe- those pieces are shit. I'll be very honest. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I mean, in all honesty, and I think most of us who, who went into journalism or went into um, writing and reporting who were at the spectrum would say that we majored in in the spectrum like that. You know, I'm a communications political science major from UB, but but I majored in the college newspaper. That's where I spent most of my time. That's where I made my friends. That's where like where I spent like a lot of my college life. And it was a pretty good newspaper for um, it was three times a week, and they you know we covered uh, we covered a lot of stuff. You know, you the Buffalo News was the only game in town. And you could, you know, you could cover stuff and beat them because they didn't staff everything that happened at Buffalo. So, um, and if I remember right, I was actually paid for it too. We got a stipend, which seems crazy to me. Nice. Uh, but, but yeah, we were actually paid as editors. So it was great. I mean, that, that's my sort of fondest memory is, is helping put out that paper. And, um, and yeah, I, did it give me confidence? Uh, maybe what it really did is it gave me like experience. I just, when, when you, when you're writing for a college paper that is comes out three times a week, you know, you're going to end up writing like 20, 30, 40 stories a semester. And mm-hmm. I think that's really in the end, what helped is it just, I was able to just get experience and just sort of try to find like what my voice was. Um, but you know, you always think you're in, when you're doing college newspaper, you always think, you know, the, what you're writing is the most important thing in the world. You probably think you're better than you are, but, uh, but I'm, yeah, I have, yeah, I have really good fond memories of university of Buffalo. And so much of that is because of the college newspaper. Sure. And it helped at least in some regards, you know, springboard what became a spectacular career. I mean, you've done so many things you've covered seven Olympics that alone has afforded you to like travel the world what was that experience like? Not just maybe as a working journalist, but just to be at an event like the Olympics. What was that like for you? Well, I mean, you know, that was my dream as a kid was to go to one. And I ended up covering seven, which is unbelievable. I, basically, the the thing I would advise, especially if any young person listening, like the best thing you can do when it comes to that stuff is to try to get somebody to pay for your international travel, which in this case, SI did, um, because it just like opens the world to you. Mm-hmm. So what it did is it just like, it like literally gave me the opportunity to see places I would never see. Um, you know, I covered uh, the Beijing Olympics in 2008. The chances are I'll never be in China again, but I got a chance to see Beijing, which was like as different a place as the United States as any I've ever been to, you know, it gave me a chance to see a different culture, even though we were sort of controlled in the Olympic environment. Same thing with Sochi in 2014. 
Um, I happen to have actually been to Moscow once before, but chances are I'm never going back to Russia. So it gave me a chance just to get a sense of like, you know, what this Russian coastal city was like. Saw the 2012 Olympics uh, um, in London. And again, a chance to sort of be in like this world-class city and to see how they put on. And, you know, the Olympics, I have a, I have a mixed relationship with the Olympics. I love the competition. I'm an Olympic romantic at heart at the same time. I believe so much of it is dirty. I believe many athletes dope, as we saw with the state-sponsored Russian Olympics. I think the IOC, a lot of them honestly are a bunch of crooks. That said, I I, I am in a, like an idealist or a romantic when it comes to the Olympics. I think a lot of that is just because as a kid, it was like one of my favorite things to watch. So to be able to have covered seven of them and to be in the middle of it, um, was just unbelievable that that's, um, of all the things I've covered for SI, it, that's easily far and away the best assignment I've ever had. It's just, you're basically, you know, they're paying you to be three weeks in a foreign country at like, you know, the sporting event where the greatest athletes in the world, um, compete. It's, it's, you know, I could spend hours on each different one. So, you know, to sort of answer your question, it's just, I think if you're a sportsman, it's just something I would encourage anybody to go see it's just it's unlike any event that you'll see maybe outside of the world cup just given the the fact that you really feel like the whole world is there with you i'm sure they were all eye-opening experiences to you but is there one specific olympic games or experience that stands out more than the others uh yeah um i loved athens that was my second one i started in salt lake city which is in the shadow of 9-11 that was kind of a weird olympics in that a lot of security people walking around. Um, and Salt Lake was very different than what I was used to. It's actually a really fun town, but uh, small and um, and just sort of different, different culture. But Athens was incredible. Um, you know, you're in basically the cradle of the universe, like, you know, where essentially civilization started. So, you know, I'd walk out every morning from my hotel. I'd look up and I'd see the Acropolis. Um, you can get back late at night from, you know, working at the office and like, Greeks never sleep. Like play, you know, sort of this this place called the Plaka, which is uh, in Athens, where all these like shops and cafes, and you know, the Greeks were out all night, every night, basically during the Olympics, just drinking coffee and and eating and celebrating, and that was just like an amazing experience to me to be in Greece, which was like this fascinating country to me. It was my second Olympics, so I kind of had a little bit of like the lay of the land, and I just for whatever reason, I just really enjoyed those Olympics. And, you know, I remember, um, being in the middle of the Plaka watching the U S men's basketball team against the Greeks. I was the only American like watching with like 300 Greeks and the Greeks took a lead in the second half and they were just screaming. It was just amazing. I was just like, it's unbelievable. However old I was in my twenties, whatever I was, it was like, I could not believe I was being paid to be in the middle of this like incredible sports scene uh, in Athens, like watching this, like cool, having this cool experience with other Greeks. And I was actually getting paid to do it. I mean, it was like absurd to me. So, um, so I think that's my favorite Olympics just because it was, um, it was in such an interesting city, but I've liked them all. I mean, Turin was really cool. Uh, you know, being in Italy was like kind of just really, really awesome. I love Vancouver. It's a great city. The Olympics were so clean. Canadians were so friendly. Um, there were some great, just on ice, on, you know, ice or on track competition. And so, um, I really enjoyed them. I will say though, that, you know, um, now having kids, it's a little, it would be a little different because, you know, when you're away for like four weeks and you don't have kids back home, 
um, you know, you could really sort of focus and, and work like 19 hour days. If I was going to cover Olympics in the future, I'm not sure I will. It would be a little hard cause I'd be away from them for a month. Right. And that would be a lot tougher, especially when you're in a, if you were in a foreign country and you know, the language is different, you're already feeling a little disjointed, but, um, but yeah, I mean, you know, to, again, to think of myself as like when I was 13 or 12 and like watching the Olympics and like thinking just, it was so incredibly cool to watch this. And now like looking back to have covered seven of them, uh, amazing. I mean, that's, you know, uh, I got everything out of the Olympics and sports illustrated and like a hundred times more than I ever, than I ever could. And, um, and the editors who signed me there, I can't thank them enough. That that's, you know, I love covering the women's final four. I've loved, I've covered, uh, Super Bowls. I've covered, uh, 15, 16, 17 U S open tennis tournaments. I've been in Wimbledon. I've been to a lot of soccer famous stadiums, but nothing is, nothing's close in my opinion to the Olympics. It's easily the best thing I've ever done professionally. That's a great sports life. It's a great sports life to have. I want to, before, as we, as we start to wind down a little bit, I want to move on to what my favorite topic is, and that's your podcast. What what first got you interested in doing a podcast? A podcast that's focused on sports media. Um, it started actually with um, me pitching my bosses on doing a podcast on the writer who wrote the cover story for Sports Illustrated. So it started um, as basically a sort of almost like a PR thing to. Um, to like give a, a different kind of medium to give more publicity for the cover story in the magazine and like a different medium. So if I remember right, and this is way back before like the, the media podcast started, like we, we would be doing like, you know, Tim Layden on whatever cover story he did mm-hmm. or, uh, um, I'm trying to think, you know, like, like, but just sort of going like Grant wall, like profiled some soccer guy that was on the cover. So initially it was basically like, I don't, we might even have called it cover story or something like that. I don't even remember, but that was like where it started. And that gave me a little bit of podcasting experience. Um, then I pitched them after that was for the iPad, actually, if I remember right, the iPad sort of went away for SI. And then I pitched them. I pitched my bosses on, could I do a media podcast where I would have some sports illustrated people, but at the same time I would have some, some sports, uh, media, you know, just traditional people who are in the sports media or sports broadcasting and do like kind of long form one-on-ones. And it would just be like an addition to the media column. It would be like another place to try to build an audience. Uh, it, they were, I wouldn't say they were, I wouldn't say reticent to them. You're not the right word, but they weren't buying in at the beginning at all. And, we we started taping that podcast. It was me, uh, my producer Bet Marston is now an NFL editor. There, we taped it from the swimsuit closet. I mean, we were, like it's literally like like this tiny little closet with bathing suits all around us. I mean, no acoustics or anything like that. And so I started. You know, people were willing to come on. I mean, I think Adam Schefter and Rachel Nichols were my first guests back in 2015, and started to do it. And I think I just got lucky because not a lot of people were doing that. If anybody, maybe maybe awful announcing was, or maybe Detson was, but not, not a lot of places were doing like a, like a hardcore sports media podcast. And then basically like everything else, I started getting more and more guests. And then I could basically pitch other guests and say, Hey, you know, Vern Lundquist was on this. Uh, Adam Schefter was on this. Do you want to go on it? And so I was basically able to get a lot of people from the sports media world. And then I got lucky and that podcast just started getting bigger and sports illustrated made an investment in podcasting. And that's sort of when things changed for me. You know, Peter King got one. Um, they did an NBA one with Open Floor. We signed with a real podcast company called Cadence 13. And then it became much more professionalized. 
and then it you know it gained more popularity. Again, it's it's a niche podcast. It will always remain a niche podcast. Never going to be Bill Simmons or Zach Lowe or anything like that. But if there's anything I'm pleased about with the podcast, I was able to prove to my bosses at SI, and I'm sure the people at The Athletic know, that there's far more interest in sports media than you might assume. Oh, God, And the, re- yes. and the reason is because, you know, you people like Joe Buck or Troy Aikman or Tony Romo, they are in your home or in 25 million, 30 million homes every week, and they become sort of part of your sports experience far more than if you lived in uh, – if you lived in Buffalo, like far more than the, the, the number two starter for the Seattle Mariners, mm-hmm. Joe Buck has much more to deal with your life than like that person is. And, you know, my thought is like, if you can cover this like a beat, you know, in the same way people cover the NFL, there'd be a lot of interest. So, um, yeah, I love doing the podcast. It's been so much fun. It just gives me like another forum to, to talk about stuff where I don't have that um, on the athletic or even at SI just because, you know, you're not going to have the length to go into stuff. and it's been great. It, it's it, more people are listening to it than I expected. And it, it, um, and I've noticed that there are a lot of people in the sports media business who don't get an opportunity to talk about what they do. And so that's, what's great about the podcast. It does give them that forum to do that. Well, niche podcasts or not, man, it's literally one of the biggest sports rec podcasts in the world. You've had a virtual who's who on it. In fact, I just checked today. And I mean, you just started at the athletic and you're already ranked on the iTunes charts. I looked there. You're yeah, like in the top it, seven. It, I'm like, you just, you only got, you're only like two episodes in on, on the new yeah, one. Yeah. Here's what I would say is, is the iTunes charts. It's, it's like, who knows what that formula is? Yeah, I mean, well, it's, it's a weird, it's, it's a, it's a weird formula of, uh, of what your rating is on the iTunes thing. Versus right. Like new sub. It's, it's yeah. Trust me when I tell you part of my take, all the Barstool ones, Bill Simmons, the ESPN was, they get more traffic than me. That said, I'm not trying to like sort of be self-deprecating. It, it definitely has more um, interest than I would have ever expected, given that it's very much a niche thing. It's not a sport. It's it's sort of those who bring you the sports. But um, the one thing I really appreciate from Sports Illustrated, and I certainly appreciate that from the Athletic, they are giving they have given me you know massive creative free. It's like the old Hulk Hogan creative control in the WCW. <laughs> they've given me uh they've given me so much creative freedom to pick my guests to talk about the topics I want. And I really appreciate that. And and that's at least for me, makes it very professionally satisfying in that like I can go and talk about topics. I, 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 there's no editor telling me what to talk about, which is really, really helpful. Now you, you've had a ton of standout guests that have come on your podcast since you started it, but Give me one or two that are most memorable to you. Like what are one or two of your favorite interviews that you've done so far? No, that's a good one. I mean, I think the two that, uh, the, the, the two that come to mind or that pop up, um, for, and I've, I've done a lot of them, but like for whatever reason, when I interviewed Ryan Rossillo, he was in a very kind of, um, contemplative and weird place in his career and he eventually did leave ESPN, but it was very clear that ESPN was sort of giving him signals that he wasn't not necessarily that he wasn't in their future, but they were they were sort of taking other people and giving them better preference in his slot. And so he just it was almost like a therapy session. He was just really honest about the sports media business and how, you know, he had done his best to like prepare for um things like the NBA and the NBA draft and NBA stories. And he'd done research and he'd gone to summer league. And he was talking about how it just didn't matter. Like it, it didn't matter because a guy like Colin Coward just 
sort of yells out something crazy that was going to draw more attention. He started, he just wondered like, have I been doing it wrong? And maybe should I have basically not like to the Bayless point of view, but like, should I just have been more of a hot taker and would I be more successful? And it was just a really interesting, honest conversation. Um, about a guy who, you know, a guy who was sort of at a crossroads of his career and then eventually, um, eventually left ESPN, you know, got himself into some issues in Montana, uh, breaking into a house trunk. Uh, I think that woke him up as well, but that was interesting. I think the other two that stand out, Carissa Thompson of Fox, um, talked about at the time her relationship with Jay Williams and dating somebody in the profession, um, as well as, um, having some, um, problems with as well as sort of talking about the internal dynamics of relationships uh chris thompson is very tight with Aaron andrews who um had had a long standing disagreement with michelle beetle and chris thompson just sort of unveiled or, or dropped the envelope down and was like very honest about stuff that nobody talks about generally speaking publicly so i really appreciated that and then on a non-sports one i had this guy evan osmos on who had traveled to north korea and wrote this piece for the New Yorker, basically he had interviewed all these North Koreans about what they thought of America. And that was just fascinating to me. Like I got the guy literally when that story broke, it was a non-sports one, but it was, it was so great basically to have a guy who had just been in North Korea and was telling me and thus the audience about like what it was like in this country, you know, where its leader was basically threatening us every day. Um, so I've really enjoyed them all, but those three definitely pop out. One more podcast question, and then we'll hit the home stretch here. There's a lot of people who are listening to this who are podcasters themselves or want to get into podcasting. In your opinion, what makes for a really good podcast? Well, the good thing is now because, um, you know, podcast equipment is cheap. The barrier to entry is cheap. You could basically do this on your own, which is great. I think, honestly, what makes, the best, what makes a really good podcast is um, having unique content and having passion and enthusiasm for the content. If you, um, if you, if you're doing a podcast that no one else is doing, whatever that topic is, or just even whatever the form is, people are going to find you. That's the one great thing about podcasting is you don't need to be from a big place like ESPN or something like that. You can really build an audience through word of mouth and through social media. It's just an incredibly creative medium too. And so uh, those are, you know, I, I would tell anybody, especially anybody who's young, just like, just like, do it and test it out and make mistakes and have bad podcasts and good podcasts. But like you, people will be surprised that you can get an audience pretty quick um, without having to be from some big, big time place because it's just not that expensive anymore to, to, to take your own and to get it up on iTunes. Right. Okay. As we wrap this up here, I like to end every interview. I have this little like mini lightning round. I like to steal from Michael K on center stage. Just going to ask you a couple questions and whatever pops in your mind, give me a quick answer. And that's how we'll end it. Cool. Sure. All yeah. right. Favorite athlete growing up. Pele. Favorite city that you've visited. Barcelona. Not counting Skip Bayless, who you are now retired from doing anyway. <laughs> who do you, who do you enjoy putting on blast the most on Twitter? Who's who comes number two? <laughs> uh, there really is no number two. That's, that's the that's the, that, that's the honest, honestly. That's the lightning round answer. There really there is no number two. There's only there's only a one. That's perfect. All right, if you were only allowed to follow one person and one person only on Twitter, who would it be and why? 
Oh, that's a really good question. Um, I think it would be this guy, David Graham of the New Yorker, because he only tweets out great stories. He doesn't tweet every day, but I've never known him not to tweet out something that wasn't fascinating. So that's, uh, I think on Twitter, he's D-A-V-I-D-G-R-A-N-N, at, at David Gran. And so if I had to choose one, it might be him. I, I mean, I, I would say amendment. If I had to choose one, it would probably be honestly a news service. I'd probably choose the Washington Post. Like, you know, if you're only giving me one and I have to get news somehow, they'd be one. If it's an individual person, I think it's Grant. Okay. Three dinner guests, dead or alive. What do you got? <laughs> uh, hmm, three dinner guests, dead or alive. Uh, Churchill would definitely be one. Uh, Ralph Ellison, the novelist, would be one. And Maybe the third one. Uh, Churchill, Allison. It wouldn't be a sports person. Uh, hmm. I like it. I got you thinking. I like it. I got Richard thinking it. Churchill Ellison and Mike Harrington. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it wouldn't. No offense to Mike Harrington. It wouldn't be him. No okay. Uh, Churchill. Allison, I'm gonna have to come. I'm gonna have to now think of like uh, like a better answer now that I, I can't do this. Um, I can't do this. I'm trying to think of like uh, is like uh, like a woman like sort of historically who'd be who'd be interesting. Um, maybe Eleanor Roosevelt. I feel like let, that would be kind of just an an interesting trio. Sure. Although I feel like I'm just throwing out Eleanor Roosevelt as like. I'm not really sure it would be uh it would be that maybe Chris Rock or Gary Shandling. Like I feel like a comic would be kind of cool to sort of have uh have as well. Yeah, I am sorry, that's a terrible answer. I, I, <laughs> I like it, man. I, I stumped you Red, for Reggie once. Reggie Miller, is... Kevin Harlan, and Chris Weber. Uh, that's my three. This made my Talk week, man. <laughs> All right, last question here. You're old enough, and I like to do this with every guest. I'm a huge eighties music guy. Who is your favorite 80s artist or band? It could be a band. It could be a solo singer. Someone from that era, from the 80s. Who's your favorite? <laughs> um, I think it would be Rush, <laughs> embarrassingly enough. Um, I'm trying to think if there's anybody else. You know, I'm sure I went through a phase like everybody else like where I liked Guns N' Roses. I mean, I think my, I think the, my band of all time is The Clash, but I think of The Clash as more of a 70s band, right. the 80s. But I, I do like, I'm very much a new wave alt music kind of uh fan so there would be a lot of people like the cure and people like in that um the violent fans and like people who did have some success especially you know early 80s mid 80s but uh but yeah i mean i feel like rush would be my de facto answer on that that's great rich listen i i, I can't thank you enough i said it at the top i was like a little bit in fanboy mode you really are your podcast is a big reason why i wanted to do a podcast the thought of being able to get media people on the show and just talk and try to break things down some and get to know them a little bit personally, I thought would be something a little different. You were a big inspiration. So man, for you, and I know you're busy. So to take the time out, I really appreciate you coming on and doing this podcast with me. It means a lot. Yeah, man. That's very nice words. And, uh, you know, I always sort of try to, uh, do stuff when people from Buffalo ask. So I'm happy to do it. Oh, I was happy to throw that Buffalo card at you too. You know, drop yeah, Tim Graham, 
Tim Graham, yeah, Tyler Dunn, a couple of those guys. I was like, oh, I got them now. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Rich. Thanks. Thanks so much again. You got it, Patrick. Thank you. Pat with us. To the victor belongs the sports. Why don't you get the fuck out of here before I shove your quotations book up your fat fucking ass? The customer is usually a moron and an asshole. Okay, a simple wrong would have done just fine, but then... This is our last conversation before the draft, literally since the day this podcast launched, which was in February. Pretty much every Monday, we get together, and at least anywhere from a third to a half of our conversation revolves around the NFL draft. What's your gut telling you the Buffalo Bills are going to do on Thursday? I'd like to indulge myself here and let me hog the mic and go first. You cool with that? Yeah, hog it up, man. It's all you. Well, I was going to anyway. All right. I think the Bills... Coming into Thursday, have three goals. Maybe you agree with me, maybe you don't. Number one is obvious. They want to get their quarterback. That's number one. Everyone knows that. Here's the other thing, and I don't think people talk about this enough. I think that the Bills want to get that quarterback, but they don't want to have to use their 2019 first rounder to do it. I think that is huge. There's a good chance that this team's going to not be good next or this coming year. So, they don't want to give up a top five to 10 pick next year. So they're going to do everything they can to avoid using that 2019 first. And then the third goal is they need to find themselves a middle linebacker, man. They've done nothing since the end of the season to address it. Nothing. I think the Bills 100% are walking away with either Josh Allen or Josh Rosen. That's where I'm at right now. I think there's no chance that they stand pat at 12. They're moving up. Where and for who, that we don't know. Now, I know you heard the Benjamin Albright interview I had last week on uh, on the podcast last Thursday. We'll go through the quarterbacks one at a time and spend maybe just a minute talking about them. But is there one specific guy right now that you think they're locked into? I'm not at the point where I think that they're completely locked in on one guy yet. I think um, I think their, their love affair is for Sam Darnold. I think they're, uh, that's their best case scenario. They're looking for any way they can land him. If it's, if, if the Browns don't, you know, I, I think it's really interesting. I, I, and I think Albright, you know, comes from a, from a data driven background. And I think that's why we're getting more. And I, I just saw your, your, your tweet from not too long ago about, you know, have we ever seen anything the likes of, of, you know, how down people are on Allen? And I think it's, it is a new era in, in analyzing quarterbacks, uh, you know, as they get ready for the draft. And, and I think it's, it's driven by what a lot of new wave, um, uh, you know, guys are, are driven by. And that's, uh, analytics. I, you know, I think we're seeing it too as it relates to Saquon Barkley. Not so much the numbers, but how little people think of the running back position now, you know, and, and those, those, those tend to be analytic driven, you know, theories as well. You know, you t- look, I, I believe in the new way of looking at, at football players and, and, and digesting information, but, you know, there are people that are just calling Gettleman and anyone who is, you know, thinking of, of Barkley and that 
uh, in that range, they're calling him stupid. And, you know, I, I don't, you know, I get a lot of that on GR. Baloney, man. All right. The running back position still matters a ton. And they haven't seen the likes of this kid in forever. They don't grow on trees like Saquon Barkley. And, you know, these people that think that, a, you know, a, a shot at a quarterback because it's so much more of an important position than a guaranteed potential gold jacket guy at running back. Boy, I, I can't come over to that way of thinking quite yet. So, you know, those are that's that was a long winded thought of uh, as it relates to the Albright interview. And a lot of people like him who are seeing this from a different uh, perspective than I think we've seen uh, analysts, um, you know, take it in the past. I completely agree with you about Barkley. Let's start there. I know the Giants are saying they don't want a quarterback, and most people think that that's bullshit. I I wouldn't be the least bit surprised if they take Barkley at two. And I'll tell you what, if I'm the Giants, I probably would do that. I love Barkley. Now, Benjamin didn't like um, Barkley. I disagree with him. Look, that's part of uh, Part of how how this thing works on in podcasting, you don't have to agree with everything the other person says. I respect Benjamin. He doesn't like Barkley. I couldn't agree with him less than that. But he hates Josh Allen. And not only does he hate Josh Allen, by the way, but if you remember, I had Greg Gabriel on, 30-year NFL scout, handful of episodes ago. He hates Josh Allen too. That's what I was getting at. It seems like everyone hates this guy. Yet, it's pretty much a lock. Not only that he's going to go in the top five, he might go number one to Cleveland on Thursday. Here's how I think that things are going to play out when it comes to the Bills with the quarterback, honestly. If it's Allen or Darnold, I think that Brandon Bean will go as high as number two. I really do. I think if Cleveland takes Darnold first, I think that Bean is going to at least make overtures to the Giants at number two to get Josh Allen. He just, I think, I believe the reports that he really likes Josh Allen a lot. So, if Josh Allen goes number one, the Bills should throw the house at the Giants to get to number two because I want Sam Darnold in the worst way. I'm sure you do, and I'm pretty sure 90% of the fans do as well. So if it's one of those two guys, I think the Bills will go up to number two. Josh Rosen, slightly different story. I think that the Bills would go maybe as high as four with Cleveland or as low as Indy at six with Denver at five. That's the range where I could see them going after Josh Rosen. Let me add this too about Josh Allen before I forget. We just talked about it a minute ago. I think the Giants are going to take Barkley. I really do. Especially if the Browns take Darnold. If the Browns take Darnold, I think the Giants are taking Barkley. I don't think they're trading out. The Jets at three, I think they love Baker Mayfield. I think the the reports, the rumors, whatever you call it, are true. I think they take Mayfield. That brings you to four. Now you got Allen and Rosen on the board. Cleveland at four. Denver at five, which when it's all said and done, I know a lot of fans are going to hate this and I'm not none too pleased myself, but I think the bills are going to go up and I think they're going to end up training with Denver at five. I think that's the money spot and they're probably going to lead this draft with Josh Allen of the two. eh, I'm not crazy about either of them at five, but I think that that's how it's going to end. I say that in part because I, I think the bills are going to end up having to give up their 2019 first. And that's why I think the fans are going to hate it more than anything. Everyone says, well, 12 and 22 should get you to five, according to the Jimmy Jar- Jimmy Johnson uh, trade chart value. 
Well, technically that's true, but you know what? The Bills are probably going to have some competition to get up to five. They might not have a choice. They may have to pay that 2019 first rounder, which is going to suck if that happens. If you're a GM, Tone, if you could play GM on another team, aren't you in your Denver or your Cleveland or your Indy at six? Don't you want that Bills 2019 pick way more than you want 22? Yeah, I, I would think so. I think that, you know, the uh, conventional wisdom would say that that pick's going to be higher, but at the same time, you're also going to have a year uh, of development for this year's pick as opposed to next year's pick. So, you know, it, it really, it, it may depend on what team it is and and where that team's timeline is in terms of, um, you know, their window for playoffs or whatever it is that, you know, that they're they're gunning for. I think the Bills, you know, you you talked about not parting with next year's number one is one of their goals going in. I, I don't think I don't think that's it's right to call that a goal because a goal is something that you, you know, you hope to achieve or you work towards. I think it is in stone that the Bills will go into this draft, go into Thursday night, and the 2019 first-round pick is simply not in play. Simply not in play. The only quarterback, and this is what I wanted to ask you when you were, I didn't want to cut you off, but when you were talking about uh, the two at the top, what you believe to be the two at the top of the Bills list, let's just say they could have either. All right, let's say they could get into the spot, whether it's one, two, whatever. Who's at the top of that list? Is it Darnold or Allen? Who who do you think's at the top of that list? Well, I'm obviously I'm guessing, but I, I don't see how it's not Darnold. I, I'm with you. I've heard that they've loved Darnold. You've talked about this probably going back a month ago. They were on Darnold, the Bills, going back to what was it, last During summer? The regular like season, early you, last. You heard it, you heard it before. Uh, it was spin, you know, it was spin season. You know what I mean? That's, that's the, uh, that's what we talked about a, a few episodes ago is I heard the Bills connected to Darnold before, you know, it became time to start, you know, spinning stuff and, and putting up smoke screen, uh, and things like that. So, you know, there is a little bit of falling back on that. There is a little bit of the Sam Darnold, uh, podcast. You know, I guess he had a, a podcast this past year and people that have heard him talk on his podcast just say he is an absolute, you know, McDermott darling, you know, the way he talks about uh, football sure. and, and comes across and stuff like that. So I do think it's Darnold. The The point with that is if there is any scenario where the 2019 uh, first round pick might be in play, uh, I believe it would be for Darnold and Darnold only. And I do think Darnold's first. And I'll tell you what, man, there's, there's only one thing in this draft that I feel reasonably confident in just from what I've read and people that I've talked to on this podcast on the air and off the air is I am really confident that the New York Jets are going to take Baker Mayfield at three. If he doesn't go in the top two, that's the one thing I'm really confident in. They love him there. They haven't even talked about Josh Allen. It's been Baker or Josh Rosen with that third pick. It's going to be Baker Mayfield. I'm telling you that now. I'm worried, though. I'll tell you right now. I'm worried uh, about them and Darnold if 
it goes Allen uh, and Barkley one and two because three is a spot that you just can't get to. You know you can't no. get to three. You know, you got nope. a chance in hell at getting to one. You do have a chance of getting to two. But if if they dig in, you know, because it's, you know, because because they just got to have their guy. They got to have Allen and, and they got to have Barkley. If they dig in and Darnold and Baker Mayfield are staring at the Jets as much as the Jets have been connected to Mayfield, I think that connection gets drawn because... You know the uh, the thought is that uh, that Darnold won't be there, and I think that could throw throw a wrench into things. And then you know, then the Jets have a decision to make, which then could force the Bills' hand. How much do they like Baker Mayfield if the two that we think they like the most are gone before they even have a chance to move? I think if the Bills want to get Darnold, they got to get to one because I think if the Browns take Allen, I think the Giants are not going to take Barkley. They're going to take Darnold if he's there at two. And I don't think they'll trade. So if the Bills want Darnold, I think they need to get to one. If the Bills want Baker Mayfield, they need to, and I don't know that they do. Again, I would be completely guessing here. But if the Bills want Baker Mayfield, I think they need to get to two. If they want Josh Allen or Josh Rosen, I think they can get somewhere between four and six. And I wouldn't fuck around any more than that if that's the guy they want. And I do want to real quick before we move on, I want to say one thing. I don't want the Bills to take Josh Allen because of the fan divide, but I got I caught a lot of shit last week when we talked about this on the I podcast. Saw that, yeah. Yes. <laughs> Listen, I'm only saying that for this reason. I get it. Bills fans, at least for the moment, are all gonna eventually get over it and they're gonna rally around Josh Allen. If they draft him on Thursday, by Sunday, people are gonna be ordering Josh Allen jerseys. But I know from experience following this team in this city for decades, the first fucking game that that guy plays terrible, it's going to start. It's going to start. There's going to be, why did you draft him? Why is this? And why is that? And here comes that divide. Just very similar to what we went through with Tyrod Taylor. People who love Tyrod, he couldn't do wrong. People who hated him, he couldn't do anything right. I just don't want to see that divide. Now, that is positively not a reason for Brandon Bean to not draft Josh Allen. So let me put that out there. I am not suggesting that Brandon Bean should not draft Josh Allen because the fans, half the fans aren't going to like it. I am talking only from the fans' point of view, not from the Buffalo Bills organization point of view. So I needed to get that out there because I, I, I did. I got killed for that shit last week. Yeah, there was no reason to be. I mean, anyone who has... Uh paid any attention to this podcast or your tweets, you know, should kind of know the difference, but whatever, not everybody does. So. It's it's a hot topic. So, I mean, I understand that. I just wanted, in that case, I felt a little bit of a need to defend myself for a second here. So that's where we're at. I think that four to six is where the bills are going to move up. I don't know if it's Josh Allen. I think it's going to be Josh Allen. It could be Rosen. By the way, I'm not that sold on Rosen. He's got a good arm. He's got the mechanics. I look at player comparisons all the time. And God, I hate Jay Cutler, man. I hate Jay Cutler. And time and time and time and time again, I keep hearing the comparisons to Jay Cutler. That alone scares me. The guy might become a Hall of Famer. We Truth is, dude, we don't know. That's, that's what it comes down to. And by the way, we didn't even mention Lamar Jackson. 
He is going somewhere in the first half of this first round. I would be willing to bet on it. I'll tell you, man, you know, and, and I got, I have to take a bit of a step back from the position that I took, uh, on Jackson, um, either last week or the week before, you know, with not, uh, with not having an agent and, and all that. You know, there, there are more things that, that came out tied into that didn't quite make it look as damning as uh as I felt it looked originally and the thing with Jackson that just is the most curious to me you haven't heard a peep out of one bill's drive as it relates to Lamar Jackson I haven't heard a thing so you're you're completely right about that but I'm telling you now dude's going in the top half of the first round and for no other reason there's just so many teams in this league that need a quarterback you're t- man, we haven't even talked about Miami. We haven't talked about the Saints. They got to replace Brady. We haven't talked about the Steelers, Arizona Cardinals, which, by the way, Ben Albright said on the podcast last week, he said that Arizona would have used their first-round pick on Josh Allen last year. They might, they might be players to really go up high in this draft and try to get them because if that's true and they liked them that much last year, they probably like them more now. So there's a lot of teams out there that need a quarterback. I think five for sure are going in the first round. I kind of waver a little bit with Mason Rudolph. And honestly, I don't feel qualified to give a good enough assessment. Greg Gabriel gave him a good endorsement on this podcast. Uh, Benjamin Albright didn't have much to say about him. Who knows? What I do know is that come next Monday, thank God, instead of guessing and playing this kind of game, me and you are going to have a quarterback to talk about I can't wait for that. Not only that, dude, but like a, a week from today, all right, where just just imagine this. Imagine the Bills draft Allen, and you know how many people will be disgusted by that. All right. And and guess guess yes. what else is Saturday night? Oh, the NHL yes. draft lottery. All right. So if the Bills oh, get God. Allen and the same I like, I guess like the worst they could pick is is fourth overall. If the Bills get right. Allen and the Sabres end up with the worst possible lottery pick, oh my God, it is going to be, it, it is going to be the, the, you know, just, oh, it's going to suck for some fans, man. And I feel bad for those fans. I won't give a shit. All right. I don't care if the Sabres pick first, fourth, whatever, you know, Dolan would be great, but whatever. All right. That team's such a mess. Uh, who the hell knows? And I've said before, as it relates to Allen, I'm not super passionate uh, about the guy one way or another. I'm willing to just let it, you know, let it play out. But there are there are a good, you know, there's a sizable faction of fans out there that will probably fall into the uh, to the camps of hating Allen and and like the Sabers being jinxed on the lottery. And if both those things happen. They are going to be some of the most miserable, insufferable tweeters and and whatever else to uh, to listen to until that shit wears off. Before we move away from the draft, I do want to talk about the other side of the ball really quick here. I think the Bills really want to leave this draft with the quarterback of their defense nearly as bad as the offense. So if they end up surrendering that number one pick in 2019 and they keep 22, or maybe if they get rid of 22, they get packaged 53 and 56 to get back in the first round. I think that they would love to get their hands on either Leighton Vanderesh or Rashad Evans from uh, Alabama. I think getting one of them, too, is a very high priority. 
No one's talking about it. It's going under the radar for various obvious reasons because all the talk is about quarterback. I would say it's pretty similar to, you know, uh, how they treated Tyrod Taylor. And their goal was to get there, um, as you just put it, uh, the quarterback of their defense, uh, as well as the quarterback of their offense in this draft. And they've positioned themselves to do so um, with, you know, with, with a lot of ammunition. And uh, I, I think it's yeah, the same plan. That ammunition could be going, that ammunition could be going bye-bye really quick, depending on what they got to give up to get to that quarterback. They got to get a linebacker. Too. I hear you, man. The linebackers, I you. I... Are, the linebackers are fucking terrible. I'll tell you what. The quarterback position on the Buffalo Bills is better than the linebacker right now as it stands. Now, I know the it's not about 2018. It's about the next four, five, ten years. But, man, the linebacking on this team right now, are you kidding me? They got to find a way to come up. And, and they didn't even try to side, re-sign Preston. They didn't make a play for any notable linebacker in free agency to this point anyway. They got to they gotta do something at linebacker. I love the kid Evans from Alabama. I don't think Vander, uh, Leighton Van Der Esch is going to be there. I think he's going to go before 22. And they're not going to move up from 22 if they even get to keep that pick. So I would say, look, Evans I, is the guy I that I say, like. I would say I haven't done as much on the linebackers as you have. I'm going to give you one thing I feel extremely confident about and then one flyer before we, uh, before we wrap this up. As, as it relates to the linebackers, one thing I'm extremely confident of, by the end of Friday night, there will be a new one on this team that I don't know that you're going to pencil in necessarily to the starting lineup, but there'll be a guy drafted by Friday night that'll be given every chance imaginable uh, to start on opening day. The other thing, here, here's, a, here's, here's a little something for you to go into the draft with, all right? I'm not putting any sort of odds on it or anything like that. I'm talking out of my ass, but I'm going to take a run at it. This team has signed an insane amount of defensive ends in the offseason. I've got Jerry Hughes being an ex-Buffalo Bill at the end of this weekend. Whoa. I think, um, I, I think, look, the Bills have been talking to these teams for a long time now. And, uh, I think Hughes can be part of a, uh, of a deal to move up with either the Browns or, or Giants. Cap room notwithstanding as it relates to the Giants. I brought this up on Twitter one time and someone jumped right out at me. Um, you know, with the cap. So I don't know much as it relates to that, but, uh, yeah, this, I mean, I just, I can't, I know he likes to, to throw waves of defensive linemen, uh, out there, but they have signed an abundance of defensive ends. And I don't think it's going to be Lawson because I don't think Lawson has much value. Uh, so I'm just going to take a flyer that Jerry Hughes is somewhere else after the draft. It's interesting. What do you think about the Bills schedule? Not the Bills. The NFL schedule came out on Thursday. As it pertains to the Buffalo Bills, what's your thoughts? Probably not stunk. good. Yeah, no, I thought it was, this, you know, I've I've always been um, someone who gets excited over the uh, over the schedule release. And this is, and I'm I'm usually disappointed. Uh, admittedly, I'm always harsh on it, always finding, you know, things to not like about it. It was not really hard this time around to find things not to like. I thought it sucked. Uh, and one thing that people don't talk about enough as to why it sucked, you know, everybody's pointing to, you know, the, the five road games, uh, out of the first seven out of the box and, and that lack of home games, nothing is, you know, nothing is more fun for me 
when it comes to to the schedule being released and to see who you start the season against. I love finding out who the opener is against. We had this exact same opener two years ago. That's a dud, all right? That is an absolute dud when you've got the exact same opener uh, as you did. And you're not even talking about it being – you know, a divisional game. Like if, if, if the, if it just works out to where a divisional game ends up the exact same opener, you know, th- th- that I can, I can see in stomach. This is, you know, th- this is not a, uh, a division game. This is, this is, it is, it's the exact same team in the exact same place and it blows. Couple that up with, you know, weeks three and four, heavy dog, heavy road dogs in week three and four. And, you know, I am sour on this thing, you know, right from the jump. I, I, for the most part, agree with you. Obviously, I hate five of the first seven being on the road, too. But there are two good things about this schedule that I do like. I love, love, people are complaining. I love the fact that the Bills don't have a Thursday night game. Those games are the worst. The short rest and all that bullshit. It just throws my week out of whack when the Bills are playing on Thursday. So I love them not playing on Thursday. And I also love that besides the one Monday night game against New England, all 15 games are Sunday, 1 p.m. That I do love. Yeah, I, I can get down with that. And and let's, let's also, uh, you know, if we want to look at the glass as half full, if they find their way to within a game of 500 or even 500, all right, uh, by the time they finish up that first half of the season, it could be on. Okay. Because it does loosen up and it, you know, and, and they do have a heavy home schedule down the stretch, which can be advantageous if they're in a playoff hunt. I think a lot of people expect them to be too far behind the eight ball, you know, after the first half, uh, what, what that looks like. But if they squeeze, you know, a surprise or two out and, you know, again, that it's that New England game just before they end up like, um, you know, the Monday night New England game then leads into like the, uh, the Bears and the Jets. And it just, you know, the schedule just loosens up a lot in, in the second half. It could be on. It could be. We're going to leave it there for this week. Tone, I will talk to you again on Monday. Do your homework because I'm going to make the prediction right now. I think next Monday we're going to be talking about. New Buffalo Bills quarterback, Josh Allen. Talk to you next week, dude. All right, that'll wrap up this episode. Big thanks to Richard Deitch. I mean, what more can I say? Richard Deitch is as good as it gets in the podcast world. To have him on the Moranalytics podcast with me, it was a huge honor, and I'm so very grateful for it. Thanks so much, Rich. Of course, thanks as always to Tone Pucks for coming on and doing our weekly Monday Pat with Puck segment. I look forward to recapping the draft with him next week. Speaking of the draft, that of course is Thursday. My guest on Thursday's show will be longtime Buffalo radio host at WGR 550, Howard Simon. I get his takes and his thoughts on the draft, and we're also going to have a nice conversation about his career in Buffalo a radio career that he's been doing for well over 25 years now. Howard's truly a fabric of Buffalo Sports Talk Show Radio, and I can't wait to interview him. I'm real excited about that. I'll also be doing my one and only mock draft on Thursday, 
and I'll be joined by another WGR guy, Nate Gary, as the two of us both go over our picks and we predict how this draft is going to play out, at least in the first round for Thursday. Guys, make sure getting episodes of this show are far easier. Just go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe. I could give a shit less if you leave a five-star rating or a review. None of that stuff matters to me. But I do want you to subscribe because then the episode will automatically get sent to your computer or your phone. The other thing I'd like for you to do is follow me on Twitter at Pat Moran Tweets. You can get all the latest news and updates about this podcast and future ones coming. Thanks again for listening. It really means a lot to me. I'll talk to you guys on Thursday. Till then, take care.